This is Tom Lee from NEJM Catalyst, and we're fortunate to be talking today with the Acting Undersecretary for Health for the Veterans Administration, Dr. Poonam Aleg. She has had a really interesting, varied career. She's an internist and a vascular medicine specialist who's started ACOs, worked on the parasite, had some experience with pharma, but what's really relevant is that she has been working first as a special advisor to David Shulkin when he was the Undersecretary of Health during the previous administration. And when Dr. Shulkin was named the Cabinet uh, Officer, the Secretary for Veterans Affairs, he and his colleagues asked uh, Dr. Alleg to be the Acting Undersecretary for Health. Full disclosure, I'm on the Special Medical Advisory Group for the VA, so I have worked a lot with Dr. Alleg, and I'm very interested in these issues and, frankly, rooting for her success with them. But with that introduction, let's talk about a topic that I know many listeners and readers are interested in, which is access to care within the VA system. So, uh, Poonam, the VA came under a lot of scrutiny a year or so ago on access, and I know that you and your colleagues have been working very hard to decrease waiting times and also to create a system in which veterans could go outside the VA for care in certain situations. Before we talk about the approach to letting patients go outside the VA, can you give a quick update on waiting time overall? How are things going? What kind of things are you doing? What are you most excited about? Yeah, absolutely, Tom. First of all, I want to thank you for inviting me. You know, I've always been uh, a great fan of yours. I respect all the work that you've been doing over the course of your career. So it's always great to be having this, this critical discussion with someone who knows the space so well and has been dedicating his professional career to improving quality and also patient experience and consumerism and transparency. So thank you again for having me here. Talking about the access crisis, the access crisis really came to light uh, in April of 2014 as a result of the Phoenix crisis. And since then, the organization actually has done a lot in, in terms of recovering after a crisis, like any organization would be. And the first, you know, phase of any crisis management is stabilization and then resuming services and really then is recovery and innovation so that we continue to build a model that we're all proud of, uh, not just in the service of our veterans, but in many ways an example or a beacon where the entire country actually learns from how the VA um, has, has approached not just crisis, but also has continued to improve the, the quality and access to care. And so just, just talking about access uh, for a few moments, when we first had this crisis, there were uh, many veterans waiting for uh, care. And, you know, like with anything in healthcare, it was truly attributed to the systems of care, to have the right systems in place to make sure we were identifying the patients who needed care the most, most urgently. It's like our clinical triage system. Uh, when patients come into the emergency room, we, we do a clinical triage and identify which patients need uh, action right away. So our first approach as, as part of dealing with improving access actually was in late 2015 when uh, Secretary Shulkin at that time was the undersecretary, and we started looking at uh, the, our databases and identifying our veterans who were in the need of um, care most emergently and urgently. 
and we had two stand downs in November 2015 and and then February 2016 and really looked at all of our consults and all of our appointments to make sure that they were getting the right care uh, and were connected to the providers that they needed to be seen with in order to take care of their clinical conditions. We then embarked upon a journey that included three, a three-pronged approach. The first approach, which again, in any kind of transformation, is sort of standing down, looking and, and seeing what the situation was, but then establishing really solid guiding principles of what needs to happen. And so we came up with a set of nine principles that became our declaration that every medical center adopted, and there was going to be consistency across the system when approaching patients that were in need of access. The the second piece, the second prong, was looking um, at what the best practices were and the simple solutions, the high-feasibility, high-impact solutions. Again, in healthcare, you know, we waste a lot of time, many times, in doing pilots and looking at different ways to reinvent the wheel, uh, testing models, but we had no time to do that. So what we did, and, and because of the unique healthcare system that we have, we were able to identify some of the promising and rising practices across the system. It became a very grassroots, organic approach to identifying ways that we could streamline uh, throughput and be able to deliver timely care. And that became our our implementation phase where we developed a set of uh, of best practices in an implementation guidebook that we started to disseminate. Now, many times, again, you know, you you think that by sending information, you know, things happen, but there's a lot that needs to be done around truly operationalizing what we anticipate doing. And so we then had boots on the ground where we had system engineers that went into the field we stratified the needs in the various hospitals and clinics and, and actually stratified them based on the highest need and the lowest performance. Um, and we sent boots on the ground to help with re-engineering the systems of healthcare delivery in our facilities. So that was sort of our overarching approach to improving access. And, and Tom, I mean, you know, we, we see over 80 million appointments a year. A third of those are in the community, uh, and two-thirds of those are actually in the VA system. The VA system is a very large system with about 168 hospitals, thousands of clinics, nursing homes, uh, vet centers, which are counseling centers, and so it is a, a pretty comprehensive integrated healthcare delivery network. I've seen a lot of innovations like, uh, you know, your, your new website for giving information about uh, where there's access, uh, how to get online access. Um, what, are, what are some numbers about, like, uh, for the, the, the urgent uh, appointment waiting list, which I know was in the tens of thousands when this crisis first was recognized? Yeah, and, and again, as, as someone that I know you are a huge advocate of transparency, you know, we, um, as part of the Improving Access, we committed to making sure our patients were seen the same day for uh, urgent needs in both primary care as well as mental health. Um, and this was something that we hadn't done in the past. And so by the end of 
2016, we had all of our 168 medical centers that had same-day services, both in primary care and mental health. And that meant either a face-to-face or engaging in telehealth or video care or responding by secure email or our nurse clinics. It could be various modalities. By the end of this year, we're going to have over a 1,000 additional outpatient clinics that will also be providing same-day services in both mental health and primary care. So today we have, like I said, over 80 million appointments a year. 22% of our appointments are for same-day services. Um, And when we first looked at the time it took in 2014 to be able to be seen for an urgent specialist appointment, it was 36 days. Today we're approaching two days. So... Uh, it's, there's been a dramatic improvement in the uh, number, the time that it takes to be able to see our patients for urgent clinical needs. As part of that, we've also looked at additional timeliness of appointments, and about 97% of our veterans are seen uh, within 30 days of recommending an appointment. We've also, as, as part of the transparency spirit, uh, had the first of its kind, and I know, Tom, you were impressed by that, uh, our access website, which is accesstocare.va.gov. And that's a very unique website where we're able to actually uh, go into the system, where veterans are able to go into the system, and depending on where they live and the zip code and the kind of clinic they need to go to, whether it's for primary care, mental health, or a specialty clinic, they're able to customize the search and within a certain radius identify the facilities that are available to be able to serve them for their clinical needs. There's a second section of that to the website that talks about uh, veteran satisfaction. And it actually scores what the satisfaction level is. There's a third piece, which is around the quality, and it compares the quality of the care that's being provided in the medical center compared to the surrounding private hospitals. So now as a veteran, you've got all the tools available for him or her to identify what his or her priority is. So if for, for, for instance, a veteran may say, I just want a better experience. I don't mind waiting an extra, you know, week to be seen. And so I'll wait to go to facility A because the quality is better. Another veteran may say, well, for me, quality isn't that great right now. I don't care about that. I just want to be seen today because that's most convenient and I want to be, you know, that's the facility I want to. So the comprehensiveness of the different facets of care are available on one website, one platform that allows the veteran to be able to pick and choose where he or she wants to be seen based on his or her priorities. In addition, we have in each of these medical centers different modalities by which they can be seen. For instance, it's, you know, there are, it'll give a list of all the facilities that have same-day services but also the types of same-day services. So I I may not want to call uh, the medical center because I know that a certain facility has a walk-in center. So I would just go in as a veteran and be seen in my walk-in clinic versus having to call my provider or my uh, my team, you know, my uh, patient-centered medical home team, which we call PACT team in the VA. So 
Um, it provides all those various modalities of choice and balances wait time, quality, convenience, and satisfaction as part of the comprehensive picture. But and, and also, Tom, I know there's no other medical center that actually it publishes this comprehensiveness in, in such a public uh, manner, but also it's the, the whole um, idea of measuring wait times is a new area that uh, the VA is leading in because the private sector does not measure wait times the way we measure wait times. I would really encourage our listeners and readers to check out access to care.va.gov. It's an amazing site with, again, as uh, Poonam described, uh, very detailed information on the access and the types of access, same-day access and uh, virtual access, but also transparency on the satisfaction data, transparency on quality data. Frankly, I haven't seen anything like it. I think it's a model for where the whole healthcare system should go. But but let's turn now to the topic that I know it's like the subject of day-to-day congressional discussions right now, which is the VA Choice Program. Now, before we talk about the program, the, what's happening with that and, and the principles that you and Dr. Shulkin are advocating, I, I you know, I let me just ask, I know that, you know, there are some people who have argued for privatizing the VA, um, and I know that total health care spending for the VA is about $60 billion right now. Do you have a sense of what would cost if every veteran left the VA for all of their care? Essentially, everything was done on the outside. Yeah, Tom, I mean, based on our cost estimates and based on our modeling, um, which we we use a platform called the Enrollee Projection Modeling Algorithm, it does, based on our our, uh, Forecast it would cost the American healthcare system two hundred billion dollars mm-hmm. um, if all of the veterans um, received their care for all of their conditions inside the VA. So, so what's the middle ground then? I mean, for financial as well as other reasons, how are you thinking about what are the broad principles? for when patients can or even should get their care outside the VA? So this is actually, a, 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 you know, a, a discussion that we're having very actively uh, as part of what the new choice program should be and what our learnings are based on our experiences with our current program. As you know, after the 2014 uh, access crisis, Congress actually did a really good job in coming up with a quick fix and being able to set up $10 billion in funding to help expand choice so that our veterans could actually be seen uh, in the community because of constraints in capacity expansion inside the VA. Again, you know the VA needs infrastructure, it needs people, employees, physicians, and to be able to deal with the access crisis, uh, it was going to be difficult to stand up uh, in, in the way that the veteran need was identified. So the, the principle and the, and the fact that this program uh, started to operationalize in such a top uh, short time frame was really commendable. But we did learn a lot from the program and we're uh, working really hard in, in identifying what our learnings were and how we make the program better. So um, in, in the current program that we have, 
we have a, a, a geographical or an administrative rule where if a veteran had to wait for 30 days or more for an appointment or lived 40 miles or more uh, uh, from a provider uh, office, then the veteran would automatically be choiced out. Um, in the new program, we've, we've learned and we're proposing that that would not be the right way to be able to send patients out. Our core principle here in the new program is how do we transform an administrative program into really an, a clinically driven program using the principles of high-performing networks? In other words, how do we make sure that our veterans get the best possible care, whether inside of the VA or outside of the VA? And how do we identify those synergies? Uh, as you know, Tom, one of my experiences are starting one of the first Medicare ACOs. And that was precisely the principle by which we've developed high-performing networks in the ACO across the country. It was the same principle that we're looking at as we're developing um, the new choice program as, as part of proposing it, where it is a clinically driven, clinically based program, but using the best of care both inside and outside of the network uh, to form a high-performing, clinically integrated, network-driven solution where the veteran is the driver of the decision-making. So there isn't that gatekeeper mentality, and the veteran is uh, working and is an active participant in the decision-making of where the care needs to be delivered. This is going to be, again, a change in culture. The VA has traditionally been a paternalistic culture, so we're evolving from being a paternalistic culture to a veteran-centric culture, to now a veteran-driven culture. And as part of that, what we're really excited about, both the Secretary and I, is that we're embarking upon another innovation, which is really developing that uh, metric system based on which we would choice out uh, or have our veterans go into the community based on a model called ACE. So ACE is uh, access convenience and experience. And so we're developing the whole developing the whole framework for what that ACE structure would be, which would be the pillar based on which we develop the clinically integrated decision making capability and then uh becomes the foundation for the high performing network. So what you are working toward is a more nuanced approach, but this one really organized around needs and in certain situations, limited access within the VA system will be the driver. In others, uh, you know, measures of quality, measures of, of patient experience uh, will, will be the driver. Uh, but uh, it may be more complex, but it, it, it sounds like it's potentially uh, a thoughtful way of integrating with the rest of the healthcare system that will enable the VA to continue to do some of the things it does best. Yes, and there will also be proposing a piece of convenience so that as a veteran, if you're living in a rural area and all you want is a flu shot, then do you really have to go to a provider to get a flu shot in the VA system or could you get it in a, you know, in a, a, a minute clinic or, you know, one of those walk-in clinics? So that's the other piece that we're looking at as we're uh, evolving the model. I mean, telehealth is going to be a big piece, Tom, at the same time. I mean, we 
do about 2 million telehealth visits. We have 700,000 unique veterans who uh, are serviced by telehealth uh, uh, in a year. And that's a model that's rapidly being propelled forward as part of our initiative in improving access based on convenience as well as based on quality. I mean, you know, Tom, I mean, 70% of all physician visits could be averted if there was a successful telehealth encounter. Well, I know that your jobs are very difficult, but they're very important, and my take is you're making uh, some very good moves and um, anticipating some real progress. I hope we'll get a chance to talk more about uh, the results from some of these initiatives in the years ahead. So thanks so much for giving us your time today and for doing this work, and we look forward to hearing more from you. Thanks, Tom, and I really appreciate not just our collegial relationship, but also our partnership as we're trying to build the new healthcare delivery model into the future together.